0: You know, normally we stand in the reading of God's Word. We are not going to do that today because as we read this text, it is a very long text, and I'm afraid you will be hearing from your sacral nerve more than you'd be hearing from the Word of God. So with your heart and mind, stand before a holy God, but recognize also that we have a rather long passage, and the Bible tells us to be kind to one another, and so, I'm going to allow you to sit for this reading. This is from Joshua 22. We'll read pretty much the whole chapter. I want you to know first that this text actually changed my appreciation for Old Testament believers. I want you to listen to some of the languages there. It's very New Testament. You know, we tend to be kind of arrogant about our New Testament. We read those Old Testament things. You know, stupid, they were, they didn't know anything. Yeah. Well, they probably knew more than... We give them credit for their their faith in Jehovah is just as real, just as living, just as vibrant as my own. We certainly have more revelation about God's redemptive plan, but faith and obedience to what has been revealed undergirds the spiritual life in both covenants. Just the same. It's the same covenant of grace, same Holy Spirit that unites us to the risen Christ even before he rose from the dead. We are united through that self-same spirit. Fear, grace, love, motivate the spiritual life of the believer in both covenants. So with that in mind, let us hear the word of God, beginning at verse 1, Joshua 22. And hear with careful and patient attention, because we're going to cover all of this today, God willing. At that time Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses the servant of the Lord commanded you, and have obeyed my voice and all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days, down to this day, but you have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side, east side of the River Jordan. Only be careful to observe the commandment and the law of Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to keep his commandments, and to cling to him, and serve him with all your heart, and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. The next few verses gives us an idea of the kind of wealth that they had accrued in their conquest. Go down to verse 10. Verse 10. And when they came to the region of Jordan, which that is, in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, built an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size, and ASB says, large in appearance. And the people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar in the frontier land of Canaan, the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan, on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them Then the people of Israel sent the people of to the people of Reuben and people of Gad and half tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead Phinehas the son of Eleazar the priest and with him 10 chiefs one from each of the tribal families of Israel every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel And they came to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and uh, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, in the land of Gilead, and said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith? And NASB calls this an unfaithful act that you have committed against the God of Israel by turning away this day from following the Lord, by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord. Have we not had enough of the sin of Peor?" Which, from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you must too turn, must turn away this day from following the Lord.
1: And if you
0: too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us rebel by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in matters of the devoted things and the wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? He did not perish alone for his iniquity. Then the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, The Mighty One, God the Lord. The Mighty One, God the Lord. He knows and let Israel itself know if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord? God of Israel, for the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord, so your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offerings or for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made not for burnt offerings or sacrifice, but as a, to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord our God, which stands before His tabernacle. When Phineas the priest and the chiefs of the congregations, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard these words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. It pleased them. And Phineas the son of Eleazar the priest said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst. Because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. And now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad in the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. For they said, It is a witness between us that the Lord is God. This ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessings to it. Let me give you a short history lesson. Moses has defeated the eastern side of the river Jordan, the valley by by defeating the kings of Sihon and Og, in a land that is known as Bashan and Gilead. The land east of the Jordan is promised to the tribes of Reuben and Gad. And in Numbers 32, Moses said to them at that time of giving them the land, Shall your brothers go to war while you sit here in leisure? To which, to their credit, the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad said, We will not return to our homes until each of the people of Israel has gained his inheritance. That's an amazing promise because that's another, some say, seven to fourteen years later. They fought with the others, the other ten tribes, before they now have come to Joshua 22. Unity was important. Unity was certainly important for military success. But it was more important for Israel as a whole, its sense of unity. Nine times the book of Joshua speaks of the whole congregation of Israel. Unity is important. God gave them rest on every side at this point and not one uh, and and not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All had come to pass. Jehovah had been faithful to this point. And this is what is amazing. Refreshingly, Israel had been faithful also. But let's be clear. A passionate faithfulness is not without trouble. Let me define these two ideas of faithfulness or fidelity and unity. Faithfulness is a willing love and obedience to God's word. Life in the kingdom of God must be lived out of the word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but he shall live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It is not my reason, not my individual experiences, not my warm feelings. It comes from the word God has already spoken and from my obedience to that word. That is faithfulness. Let's talk about unity. Unity is our love for, willing submission towards, and encouragement of God's people. Unity amongst God's people is an essential quality in the Christian life. Non-negotiable. It does not mean that we always have to have warm and fuzzy feelings about each other, but it does mean that we must care enough to protect and preserve the unity of those who call themselves followers of Jesus and seek, to the best of our ability, their best. We certainly don't want any of the Lord's children to be discouraged. We certainly don't want any of the Lord's children to stumble. That would be worthy of what? a millstone hung around your neck and cast into a deep sea. Think of Hebrews ten fifteen, Not neglecting to meet together, encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. This is essential Christianity because there are two tables of the law, to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves, This kind of unity is a prerequisite to genuine fidelity and faithfulness to God. Now after commending the Easterners for their commitment to unity, Joshua exhorts them to be faithful to Jehovah. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law of Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. There's no finer definition of covenant faithfulness I know than this. It is obedience that flows out of a sincere love of God. Faithfulness is a heart matter, but it never stays in the heart. Heart faithfulness to God that perseveres to the next generation will always demonstrate itself in preserving both tables of the law. The warning to maintain faithfulness has no teeth if it falls upon those who cannot or will not be faithful. But Romans chapter 6 tells us that sin shall not be master over you if you are essentially united to Christ. If the Spirit dwells in you, sin will not be your master. If we are united to Him, we are also united to each other who are united to Him. And yes, we do live in a fallen world. But obedience really is a live option for one who is united to Christ. You can obey. It is possible not to sin. Thus, 1 John 2 tells us that I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Even true heartfelt faithfulness can sometimes be problematic because we don't have all the facts. We don't know everything that's going on. certainly was true in this particular situation in Joshua 22. <clears throat> Because we don't have all the facts. Nevertheless, it is critical to faithfulness that we persevere and preserve, keep the faith. For there can be no unity worthy of the name without faithfulness to God. Now, there is something ugly about human nature, and yet quite understandable. We generally assume the worst, don't we? That's what took place here in Joshua 22. But love requires and it's not like there hasn't been a precedent for that in the past, either. But love requires that our first response to perceived sin is not to act unbecomingly, not be provoked to anger, not taken to an account a wrong suffered, but to bear all things, believe all things, hope all things. Endure all things. This is why we must always take intermediate steps before turning to anything that would destroy the sweet unity that should exist amongst brothers in Christ. In this case, it was war they were prepared to do. In our case, it is discipline, both individual and institution. We don't go to war. We don't take up arms. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood. With swords and chariots. But we practice. Faithful. Discipline. Love does cover a multitude of sins. But it never ignores sin either. We must take his command. To keep the faith seriously. The Westminster's holy jealousy. Excuse me. The Westerners. The Westerners. Holy jealousy in these circumstances, was a proper proper expression of their intense concern for the glory of God and the honor of His institutions and His worship. But their zeal was tempered with the meekness of spirit-wrought wisdom and before proceeding to extremities. But if their suspicions were confirmed, if that altar had been built... For false worship, they were prepared emotionally to go to war for the fidelity of Jehovah. In spite of the misunderstanding here, this is a sign of health that Israel is so stirred even by the appearance of unfaithfulness that she is ready to take meaningful action. The church needs to recover her passion for piety, particularly in regards to the worship of God. American Christianity is too democratized. Pluralism, even in essential doctrines, is now expected. We must be nice to people, or they might leave the church. Now this this attitude is a concession to the rise and triumph of the modern self. Now, I pause here because I've got a note in my notes here to tell you about a great O.P. preacher named Carl Truman who has written a book by that title. It is, it helped me understand my children. It helps my children understand me. The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Google Carl Truman. He's got some videos. Oh, okay, anyway. But the church is not a democracy. Rather, she lives under the kingship of Jesus who has entrusted the care of his flock to elders who guard, protect, and discipline. The New Testament gives principles for church discipline. The New Testament analogy to Israel's fighting is that discipline. Now, I'm not familiar with the OP's rules of discipline, but in the PCA, they have a helpful book called the Book of Church Order." to safeguard all parties, if it is followed. But this passage gives us a proper attitude toward the task of preserving faithfulness to the church. So I ask you, are you ready to go to war for the faith fidelity of Providence Presbyterian Church? Are your elders prepared to teach, encourage, admonish, discipline, and even excommunicate when necessary? to preserve the fidelity and unity of Christ's body? Communicate member, are you prepared to be counseled and reproved by others in this body? Will you keep short accounts with each other? Will you be reconciled in peace even if you don't necessarily agree with your brother? And above all, as you have vowed when you became members of this church, will you... All diligently pray that you will continue to agree to submit to the Lord, to the government of His church, and in case you should be found delinquent in doctrine or life, to heed its discipline. This is what warfare in the church is supposed to look like. Now we have seen Israel's righteous response to the reported rebellion and unfaithfulness of God's easternmost people. Now let us look at the Easterner's remonstrance. Without Western fidelity, there can be no unity. Without Eastern unity, there can be no fidelity. Let me say this less abstractly. Unless Providence Presbyterian church members are corporately faithful to live according to the word of God, she will never enjoy the preserving unity that God redeemed her for. And if there is no conscious, purposeful, guarding the unity among our members, there can be no claim to faithfulness to God. Isn't this what Jesus taught us to pray? That they may be one, that they, that's us, may be one, even as we, God the Father and God the Son, are one. That boggles my mind. Unity is a requirement for true fidelity to God. But unity, like fidelity, is a sticky thing most of the time. Upon hearing the rumors of apostasy, the Westerners sent representatives to confirm the rumor. They made assumptions that were reasonable, righteous, And wrong. At least they were given the wisdom to investigate thoroughly before disrupting the unity of God's people. They rightly reasoned from fear of apostasy and from fear of their own destruction with historical evidence. How soon would this altar take on a Canaanite color, soak up Canaanite belief, sport Canaanite practice, adorn Canaanite gods, and placed the whole congregation at odds with Jehovah. They cited the historical record some 50 years earlier, the Baal of Peor fiasco that brought Yahweh's plague against the whole congregation. Notice here that they understood that God assumed the unity of his people. If you rebel against the Lord today, he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel tomorrow. To their credit, the Westerners offered a faithful alternative showing that they too had a future orientation in their thinking. If the land of your possession is unclean, then cross over to the land of the possession of the Lord where the Lord's temple stands and take possession among us. If the distant historical reference reference were not enough, they remind them of a more recent historical example and and the consequences of that apostasy. Remember Achan, about seven years earlier. He did not perish alone for his iniquity. This makes clear their real motive was fear, that they would be caught up in God's displeasure. They asked, what about us? We too will perish in your apostasy. Now it is time for the Easterners to make their case. They begin with a unified confession of faith. El Elohim Yahweh. El Elohim Yahweh. The Supreme, the the Strong One, the Supreme Being to be feared, the truly existing One and Covenant God, twice spoken in invocation to the Westerners' accusations of rebellion and unfaithfulness. Now there is much irony and fear in the passage. It really is a slice of life. The Westerners feared the altar is an expression of infidelity, while the Easterners affirmed that the very same altar is a means of preventing infidelity, both motivated by fear, fear of destruction, Fear of the future. Thus they profess their faith to quell their fear. The strong one, the supreme being to be feared, the truly existing one and covenant God. The entire case of the Easterners' actions was their unity with Israel. We are one in lineage, we are one in confession. We have the same God. This is a significant testimony to the personal and relational nature of biblical truth. Now we in the West think of truth as factuality. Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. But the Bible presents truth in terms of relationship. Jesus doesn't just tell us about himself. The facts about himself. He bids us to know him. Not just know about him. He is the way. He is truth. He is life. This passage is shot through with this reality. The Easterners next offer in their remonstrance, remonstrance a self-maledictory oath. And you know what a self-maledictory oath is, right? Uh, cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. Okay, so. Well, that's what he does here. If it was a rebellion or breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for turning away and building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to, uh, to burn offerings and grain offerings and peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance upon us. The Easterners probably did have something to be concerned about. Now listen to the language of the Westerners. Thus says the whole congregation, it wasn't the whole congregation, it was just ten tribes. Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord. Now if your land is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land. I hear an already established prejudice against the Easterners and their land as inferior to the West, the real promised land. We must remember that the idea of regional gods was a cultural order of the day in Canaan. The Moabites had their God. The Hittites had their God. The Edomites had their God. Israel had their God. And whose God do you have? I perceived the Westerners had already picked up on some of that culture. We also remember that the Jordan Valley was a real geographical problem. In our day of bridges, we can't appreciate what barriers to communication the Jordan posed, ranging from 1,300 feet below sea level to 2,500 feet above sea level in a span of 40 miles. Now, that's about 4,000 feet difference. It is the same as Brasstown Ball and where we're sitting today, and it's 80 miles away, but crunched into 40 miles, half the distance. So little wonder, at least, that they wanted to prepare for the inevitable worst-case scenario. They were worried for the future. But was that the right thing to do? Didn't Jesus tell us to not be anxious for tomorrow? In Matthew 6, didn't Paul tell us to be anxious for nothing in Philippians? Could this be a worthy worry? Yes and no. There is an interesting word choice in this passage. The language, in time to come, is literally the word tomorrow. Which means exactly what Jesus and Paul meant. Be not anxious for tomorrow or tomorrow. It is the future beyond the present. But the word fear or concern is unique to the Hebrew Old Testament and Greek Septuagint. It conveys a pious concern and reverent appreciation for the future. As anyone with children has experienced, it's easy to slip from a respect for future consequences to anxiety about what will the future bring. The Easterners were afraid that in the generation or so the descendants of the Western tribes would treat their descendants with disdain, view the Jordan River as a Berlin Wall, And consider the eastern tribes as no part of Yahweh's people. If you don't live in Yahweh's land, how can you claim to be Yahweh's people? To care about whether one's seed will be faithful to God. And to take all necessary measures to ensure that it might be so is a proper concern. I love that there are so many grandchildren of people I taught in this room. Let Israel teach us to communicate the faith to our children in diligent, interesting, and persistent teaching. To walk before them with fidelity and integrity. And above all, to pray, 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 pray to God for them and with them. To pray even for grandchildren and great-grandchildren yet to be born that Yahweh will draw his seed from our seed and grant us a godly seed. We do provide for them and perhaps leave them some material blessing, but God forbid that we should ever be willing that our children dwell in ease and take comfort in family wealth on which is written, Ichabod, the glory has departed. This certainly applies to the church family as well. May may we not revel in buildings and lands, but in the presence of God in Christ Jesus. May the church's inheritance not be like the cathedrals of Europe, beautiful edifices, but devoid of the spirit, tourist attractions of a now irrelevant faith. Within the church, let us be responsible to secure both fidelity and unity. Let us provide instruction in the truth. Live in demonstration of the truth. And trust the Spirit on our knees without anxiety for His fruitful harvest. Let our life, instruction and prayers, be our witness, our monument, our large altar that testifies to the generations that follow. But let it be our monument. Individual, not relying on the church or your pastor or elders, take personal ownership of any infidelity and disunity that surrounds us and become that witness. Teach, live, and pray, and pray specifically. Befriend some younger adult enough to ask them, How may I pray for you? Seek out some student. And ask them, how may I pray for you? Notice some child and ask them, how may I pray for you? Then do it. Pray sincerely for their need and then follow up with them. How's your issue going? What else can I pray for? I know of no greater glue for ongoing unity than a sincere intergenerational praying community. That community will start with you. Would you pray relationally for real people who will become the real church in the real future? Believe in your heart that your prayers are as tangible as stone altars, a witness to fidelity and unity. The text concludes with a confession that Yahweh is God. This is the Old Testament equivalent to Jesus is Lord. Yahweh is our God as well as yours. And therefore we are one people. So here are a few applications. One. Give your heart. Keep your heart. Excuse me. Keep your heart pure. For out of it are the issues of life. Let your love for God spill over naturally into loving action for your fellow believers. Particularly... In the way you speak about them to others. Two. Obedience is possible. To those who are united to the resurrected Christ. Humbly expect obedience of yourself. Three. When it comes to other believers. Assume obedience first in love. Believe all things good of them. Give them the benefit of the doubt before you know all the facts. Four, be prepared emotionally and spiritually to defend the faith boldly and with gentleness and humility. Now these are not two mutually exclusive terms. Bold humility is not an oxymoron. And ask Michael Harper what that means. (laughs) And don't be afraid... Of the future in your concern for the future. The kingdom is not safe in your hands. So don't take it up. It belongs to Him. The power of that kingdom belongs to Him. And of course the glory of that kingdom will be all His. This is how Jesus taught us to pray. So will you seek first his kingdom and righteousness and leave the results up to him without anxiety? Will you examine your own contributions to the fidelity and unity of Providence Presbyterian Church without expecting anyone else to make it happen? Will you cultivate that essential unity to all who are united to Christ, even beyond our church, even beyond our denomination, even beyond our denominational all who are united to Christ and the object of His faithful love and thus faithfully fulfill His redemptive purpose which He has said in His high priestly prayer that even as Jesus and the Father are one may we be one with followers of Christ. Let us pray. Our good Father, we thank You so much that You have not left us in any darkness whatsoever, but You have provided us light and grace and Your Spirit to hear Your Word, believe it, and act on it. Give us that faith, O Father. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.